Thanks for joining us on the Sit Down Startup Podcast, where Tara and I bring inspiring stories from leaders building startups from all over the world. Every week, our guests share their journey and how their customers played a crucial role in it. How are you liking our podcast so far? Be sure to connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Sit Down Startup. For this episode, I sat down with Pedro Sorrentino, founder and managing partner at Atman Capital. Pedro is an old friend and I was able to see closely how he carved his path into venture capital, starting at Funders Club, confounding one VC, where he had the pleasure to lead the investments in Rappi, Pipe5, Covey, and many other startups. I'm super excited to have him on the show. And I'm curious to listen to Pedro's story and how he is helping the LATAM startup ecosystem grow. Are you ready? Let's sit down and start up. Pedro, it's so good to have you on our show. Super excited to have another Pedro, to have a double uh, double Pedro here for our listeners. So with every single guest that we have on Sit Down Startup, we like to ask this question, uh, what is your favorite coffee drink? Because the whole inspiration of the show is to bring conversations that we have on a coffee shop somewhere in the world to uh, podcast because unfortunately most of us cannot see each other. So what is your favorite coffee drink? I just love a, a well done double shot of espresso. Um, that's it. Very simple. It. No sugar, no nothing. Just a good double shot of espresso. And it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I appreciate the invite, you know, and hopefully the audience can take a double prayer of session, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's a double, a double trouble too. So, Pedro, I had the pleasure to meet you many years ago when I first moved to the U.S. And so far, you built a very successful career, starting your own company, working a few different funds, and now starting your own fund. So for the ones that haven't had the pleasure to connect with you before, can you walk us through like your career in the, uh, how you got into tech? Yeah, of course. Well, I've been in the U.S. for about 12 years. I, I'm originally from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Mm -hmm. Moved here with without a single connection. I didn't I didn't know a single person here. I, I originally I moved to Colorado for uh, a master's. So uh, in a previous life, I used to be a journalist. I was a music journalist, actually specifically writing about rock and and, and metal. Um, and then I started working for tech companies during uh, my time at journalism school in Brazil. And I've always been an extremely curious person and very curious about business as well. I've always enjoyed reading. I read a lot. And um, even to the degree that um, I bought my first television last year uh, with, uh, with the pandemic. I just don't watch a lot of things. I, I just read a lot. And that curiosity brought me to tech. And then there was a time where I just wanted to be around people that were very driven and frankly had this um, combination of self-reliance with uh, suspending this belief that everything is possible and you want to just build a better life and, and so forth. And the values that made that, that make the U.S. the U.S., uh, for me, they're still very much alive and, and, and it made sense for me to move to this country versus staying in Brazil. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so I did that. And during the masters, um, I started our first company. We raised a little bit of money and then sold that company. And instead of, uh, this was why I was in school. So then one, instead of graduating, I, um, I graduated, but instead of when I graduated, actually, instead of moving back and going to work for them in Brazil, I decided to stay and I joined this other company called SendGrid. I was their employee number 11, uh, their first uh, uh, business hire, uh, aside from a VP that, that was there running the, the business side of things and learned tremendously during that journey. Uh, I like to say that I went through, you know, three cycles of hard things about hard things kind of thing. And similar to your journey at at Zendesk, right? Like that company that you joined is very different than the the current Zendesk, you know, and we went from zero to hundred million revenue in four years. Uh, A hired CEO uh, was replaced by another CEO. Um, The company, I stayed there from the, before the series A all the way into the series D. Uh, and then I left and a year later, the company went public and I left to start a career in venture capital. I was very fortunate to start my career at a firm called uh, FCVC, uh, used to be called Funders Club. And basically alongside uh, AngelList, you know, if the whole motto was if software was eating the world, we were eating venture capital. And um, phenomenal investors. I had, you know, incredible mentorship there. Uh, you know, specifically from uh, from from Boris, uh, that was the founder there, one of the founders, and and, and Jared, and um, these guys really helped me understand what it means to be an investor, and think about the frame, the mental frameworks that you have to have in order to be a good one, and they were very good. So you know, seed investors in companies like Coinbase, Instacart, Flexport, GitLab. Um, you know, ended up having exposure to Slack, DoorDash, all way before the IPO. So very, very successful, brilliant investors. And I stayed there for a year and a half. Then I got my green card, which it's a very important moment, right? Huge milestone. Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the quest of an immigrant, I guess, here. And once I got the green card, I resigned from my position there as an associate. And... Um, I, I fell in love with the venture business when I was there. Uh, really learned that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I I love what I do. I really do. So um, I had a good performance there as an associate. I ended up sourcing 11 companies in a year with 11 up rounds in six months. And then, then I started a, a firm called OneVC. And uh, the focus uh, was to basically invest in the US and in Brazil at the same time. And I ran the firm for about three and a half years and I left uh, about six months ago um, because basically every time that you raise a new fund, uh, there's always a discussion in strategy. And I wanted to do something different than the, the rest of the partnership, you know, over time after starting, you know, started bringing more people to the table as, as, as partners. And since the fund was uh, almost fully deployed, uh, basically we, we decided to separate. Um, and uh, I, I started Atman, which is what I am working on uh, right now. So can, do you want, can you share the strategy behind Atman and where you're going to deploy uh, uh, the funds that you're going to raise for it? It will continue to be a cross-border US mm-hmm. 
um, Latam farm. Uh, but right now, um, I'm keeping it pretty uh, stealth. Uh, on the second half of the year, we'll be sharing more things, at least on the record, basically. Yeah, so I have a, one of the things that I want to ask you. You had an opportunity to be on the two sides of the coin. And maybe I already know the answer of this, but why do you prefer being an investor than being a founder? Because I get bored easily. And I think that um, I love the deep context switching that it's required to be a good investor. So you have to really have, which is similar to journalism in a way. So you have to have almost um, 1% penetration in 100% of topics. And I appreciate that. Um, the types of books I read are very diverse. The types of music I consume and everything is just very, very different from each other. So I don't think, I think I'm a way better investor then I can be an operator. and But I'm also a very entrepreneurial investor because I started one VC firm um, and I'm starting another one. So, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that during the transition, I was offered uh, multiple job offers uh, to join other firms as a partner, but uh, I, I continue to consider myself uh, an entrepreneur. So it's, uh, it'd be very difficult for me to, to, you know, quote unquote, get a job. I think everyone has a boss everyone has a boss but um i like that the quotes from uh, from nasin taleb which is basically like the three biggest dangers in life are uh you know heroin or opioids in general carbohydrates and a monthly paycheck <laughs> so uh, it's just uh, I, I appreciate the independence it, it's much tougher you know certainly uh you know it's no joke to 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 start a vc firm and raise the capital and all the fiduciary responsibility that comes with it but of, uh, having done it once, uh, now it feels very natural and um, and very very simple. And and then the independence that you get on the other side versus the life of being an associate is is remarkable. It, it's really really great. And you start you know basically figuring out all sorts of other problems, which you know those are the sacrifices that all founders make, right? Like you make sacrifices in the present for a better future, and oftentimes you get paid for that if you do a good job. Um, I think that when you look at someone that wants to follow a more traditional career within the world of venture, it's tough because you have so much uh, firm politics around it. And even if you work very hard and you make it to partner at a large firm, um, there are only really less than 10 firms that's worth, that are worth you know, having that position versus you starting your own firm. That's very interesting, right? So that entrepreneur spirit or ambitions in you, you kept seeing the opportunities on the venture capital industry, like other founders will see on the industry that they are operating, and you keep bringing your point of view to solve that problem to life, right? Uh, and we've been seeing the past, especially the past 10, 15 years, a lot of the change of how venture capital firms operate on the phases of a startup, especially especially early stage, right? That is a lot of team building and you're supporting on the hiring, getting the first customer. So what, what do you think is the main gap right now that on the venture capital model to build more sustainable business or help founders build more sustainable business? I guess if I answer the question precisely with the way how I really think about it, I'm going to tell um, 
what I'm I'm actually going to share more about what I'm building. But uh, I guess I'll, I'll try to make it more uh, general. And you know, if you think about how interests are aligned mm-hmm. um, in the world in general, and how powerful things could materialize when you actually have true um, true alignment of interests. Um, you see that today founders are not being as well compensated as they could be mm-hmm. uh, by doing the work that they do within the ecosystem. And there's a reason why you only have a few amount of firms that continue to be the top firms. And I like to say that Venture is the type of industry that has no barrier of entry, but a very, very high barrier of permanence and success. So the issue with early stage is that um, there's just an insane amount of capital available, but they're only available for a very select type of opportunity. And there's a massive lack of independent thinking within the asset class. And that is because our world continues to be small. So if you look at how the power law of venture works, you know, for you to be massively successful, all it's necessary is that you have exposure to about 100 to 150 opportunities a year that are the right opportunities. And those are typically already very crowded. But why are they crowded, right? There was a moment in time where they weren't. There was a moment in time where the rounds were not oversubscribed. So the key there is to understand how can you tell a story and align economical interests in a way where you're one of the first people to understand that that's about to happen. And then that is also going to be the future before others. And it's funny how it works. Sometimes that difference can be can materialize itself in days. Sometimes it, it could take months as well. So the amount of capital that's being thrown at the market right now, it's not an issue per se. What I do think that we lack as a whole are more sophisticated products across the board that leave the two and 20 life. Um, there's no necessarily leave the two and 20 life that actually build on top of that. Um, because we have different types of players within the ecosystem today that weren't around a decade ago or five years ago. And that includes better service providers. It includes people that understand how to build private communities where people share principles and values. And it also includes the fact that in the last 15 years, we have never had so much wealth generated by people that are working with the internet across every echelon of, of management. It's not just the founders. So the combination of all these aspects can actually bring to light uh, some very powerful platforms that if they are executed with the right level of sophistication when it comes to shipping the right types of products in venture capital can really change the asset class and how the game is played. That's super interesting. We always say here in the podcast when we interview the founders uh, and the investors that it takes a village uh, to raise a startup, right? It's a team sport. There's so many uh, pieces that is involved. And when you say here is that most of the time, not all the interests are aligned on that 
mission or the stage. So that that is probably giving a gap uh, or showing a gap opportunity that the most successful firms are already covering a little bit on that point, right? Seeing like I'm continuously um, surprised by the amount of marketing community and uh, value add that firms like Andreessen is putting on their portfolio, right? The other day I was looking on their jobs page and that was around 10, 10 openings for community builder, clubhouse, uh, talent uh, sourcing to really help going a little beyond the the, the money that you're putting on a, on a startup, right? How are you going to help them? Uh, in, in your case, for example, if there is companies in Brazil going to the U.S. or U.S. companies going to Brazil, you can leverage your network to open the markets. You can leverage your network to help hire the first executive on the firm. So is the, is the, the job of a really good venture capital investor goes way beyond of providing uh, the financial support for the founders to raise their company, right? Yes, in general, I would say that the more qualified the market and the founder and the team and the opportunity, the least important it is to, you know, the money matters less. Um, ultimately, like if you're good, you're gonna have access to it anyway. So, you know, you want, to, you want people that will be there to serve you. And the interesting thing is that, you know, we have enough abundance and opportunities in the world for many different, firms to actually coexist and collaborate across multiple right. different levels. So the Andreessen approach is one that makes a ton of sense for them and the size of their funds and how much revenue they get from management fees. And um, and it's been working quite well. I think that if, you know, they, they're very, very good with, with public relations across the board. Uh, and they are, but there are other things that founders need as well. Those go, you know, around emotional support, uh, private communities where some of the conversations that typically you can have, but they're only offline, that could actually happen in a really trustworthy type of environment. Uh, there are other things as well regarding how to help the founders manage their own uh, wealth and so forth. So uh, there are a lot of opportunities around the table right now because of how dynamic the um, the asset class and the ecosystem is and has been. That's super interesting. I was looking on your website and one of the things that caught my attention was your tagline that you partner with inevitable people. And you, you, you were talking a lot about that partnership that you have with the companies that you invest. Can you tell me more about what you mean by partnering with inevitable people? I think that I have yet to meet anyone that built a unicorn or a decacorn company that did not believe every day that it was possible. Mm -hmm. So that sense of inevitability is just really important because high quality founders, they don't give up. They persist and persist and persist. And it's, it's a combination of relentlessness with craziness, which I think it's what makes someone uh, inevitable. It is so painful to be a founder um, that uh, the metaphor I used to provide for people when they were like, oh, how is it, how was it to start uh, one VC and, and raise the money and so forth? And I was like, imagine if you were chewing glass for breakfast and as the glass perforate your gums and you taste your own blood, you smile. That is how it feels, right? So you need to want 
want it, right? It only works if you want that, if you believe that there is no other alternative in your existence but to do that. That is what is behind an inevitable founder. Uh, oftentimes you will see some of these people that, you know, maybe in the 90s or in the early 2000s, they would be working at investment banks or, or, or at McKinsey or BCG, uh, which are all, you know, fine organizations, but they're just very different than building a company. And, you know, for instead of going there, they decide to start a company because it's the nicest, coolest thing to do. And those are not my people. I typically gel extremely well with founders that fit the whole Joseph Campbell hero journey type of situation. So they are on a quest. They think that it's really their calling in life and it feels very intimate and deep for them. And precisely because of that, they're not going to give up on the face of adversity. And then by not giving up, they win. So, yeah. you know, that's it. Um, and, and, and it takes a certain type of, of, of person. I don't like to partner or invest in normal people. I only like to invest in weird founders. And uh, and I mean weird in a good way. I think that the only other firm and that I've heard say something like that on the record was Sequoia, where it's like they always have some sort of weirdness. And I also saw Josh Wolf from Lux Capital, right? Like he once tweeted something I thought was great. It was just like, you know, chip on the shoulders equals chips on the pocket. And I think that that's right. You know, these are people that are out in the arena wanting to prove something for themselves and to the world. And um, and they just have this, it's almost this divine-like force that propels them into make things happen. Um, I'm sure that the founders of, of Zendesk, for instance, right? Like they have many horror stories about how the company almost died and, you know, X, Y, and Z kind of happened and it saved the whole thing. And, and it wasn't just one time, it was multiple times. It's, it's... It's like putting fires every day, 24 hours a day. And for our founders, right, uh, Miko moved to U.S. with two kids, right? So is it was a definitely like hard journey. Uh, but the fact that you don't give up, the fact that you believe so much on that message, that you make other people believe on it. And they are believing most of the time on early stage or something that doesn't exist, that you can't prove success. And the thing that keeps those people growing their business is the fact that they are so into that message that they don't give up. And that energy is just spread around everybody around them, right? And their teams, because they need to keep motivating every single person that is, done, is believing on that message until that becomes true. So it's a more, uh, we, we use a lot on the industry, the self-fulfilling prophecy uh, kind of terminology from this, but it's the fact of like, if you want something so bad and you believe on that and you do all it takes, and that's most of the time is your option or your only option to achieve what you want to achieve of your life, you won't give up, right? And there is a lot of very hard days that will come, but standing up, and try it again is what differentiate good from the greatest, right? The great ones out there. Yeah, not giving up, not dying is a very important part of success. And I think people um, underestimate that. And then by investing on founders in the US, in Brazil, in other parts of Latin, did you notice any sort of difference for entrepreneurs from different countries? 
on this set of like inevitability of who they are. Do you, what is your take on like geodesic location for success? Yes and no. So that's a very good question. Also, I think it's a good question because it not only gets specific, but it also gets specific towards the types of people that we typically mm -hmm. enjoy to partner with. An inevitable founder has the same type of personality, irrespective of, wh of where they're from. This is also something that I really like to learn about the people I partner with. It's just to learn how they, like, well, how, well, how was their childhood? How did they grow up? Where? Uh, what type of things happen to them that form their personalities? There's almost um, quite a Jungian aspect of it. And I would say that the personalities of the founders of Rappi or, or Loggy, right? Like some unicorns in Latin that, that I invested are um, very similar to the personalities of US-based unicorns that I saw when I was a funders club or some of the companies that I've invested that are, you know, getting to that level now. Um, they vibrate in a very similar way. They see the world in a, in a very similar way. They learn how to learn. They're humble and aggressive at the same time. But certainly you have cultural differences, but you have cultural differences across every type of founder, right? Um, you know, like Israelis are different than Argentinians that are different than Americans or, you know, or French founders and so forth. But there is a box or something that you can fit all of them into one thing. I will say though, that intellectually though, doing cross-border investing, um, just learning about two different geographies, in my opinion, uh, you know, I could be lying to myself, but I like to think that it makes me smarter and a better investor because I learned about types, some types of problems um, in Latin America. And I learned about some types of problems in the U.S. and combine both, combining both of them, specifically in a world where information flows in a much faster way, uh, is very powerful. And it really, really helps good judgment, which is, you know, we are paid by our investors to have good judgment. Ultimately, we're in a business of seeing the future before others and hopefully being right. That's your secret for success. But how do you, what are the steps that you do when you're sourcing a deal that you can prove that that founder is part of that inevitable bucket that you're looking for? I really like to understand the reasons why they're starting that company and what are the both formal as well as the informal alignment um, in place, meaning can the people around this organization function really well? And then on the at the structure level, are the incentives correct for that to actually work out in, in a really good way? And that goes in terms of economics, cap table, decision-making, role definition. There are many ways for you to measure that type of stuff. The other thing that I think is a good identifier of people that are ready to build something very special is how much suffering that person went through in their lives and how what did they do about it? You know, it's not that you have to invest in people that suffered, but no one really, by the time they're starting a company, even if they're very young, they've been through some sort of bad thing in their life. And then what happened when that happened and how did they deal with it? Because... The relentlessness and the determination are key factors into that. 
but these are all, you know, soft skills regarding the founders. Ultimately, you know, there is also a very basic framework um, in order to see if the opportunity can provide venture-like returns, which in my opinion, it always starts with the size of the market. So we've been talking a lot about the teams and that's important, of course, and but it's not the most important thing. I would not invest in the right people at the in the wrong market, because if I do that, um, my investors and myself will never make money. And um, no one really cares about the glory stories of entrepreneurship if you're not making the money that in the end, we are a financial product, you know, right? So, um, so starting with markets is extremely important and having an opinion, building a mental thesis around some of those markets, right? Um, that's the first aspect. The second aspect, you know, certainly the people and the personalities behind the founders and all the incentives, both the explicit as well as the implicit ones. And then the last thing is actually the product itself and the quality of it. But I read everything before a meeting. So the way I also kind of protect my time is that my bar for a meeting is very, 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 very high. But then when I decide to have a meeting, um, I research everything about these people and literally everything I can possibly find, which then produces a much better result of finding things that are hidden versus if you just take a call and kind of wing it. And founders know, you know, they notice when you have an investor that did the work versus one that, that did not. And then ultimately they just feel appreciated by the fact that you came prepared. So this was a long ramble. I, I don't remember the question exactly. <laughs> but those are, you definitely answered the question. Uh, Pedro, uh, we could not talk about customer experience on this podcast. So a uh, question for you. Uh, we talk about the team, right? The product and all these other factors. And you look when evaluating a company. Do you usually go on their website and contact their support team to test their speed and quality of service? Yes, I, uh, I've actually signed up for the product. I've gotten into a point of like creating fake uh, pages to pretend I'm a customer and join calls. Uh, I'm very bit much of a fan of uh, tactical diligence. Not for every deal, I'd be lying mm -hmm. if, I, oh, if, if, I, if, I, if I've done, if I said to you that I've done it for every deal. But yes, I think it's important. And, um, you know, it will just provide, because, you know, we, we're also in the information arbitrage game. So, the, you know, in early stage of investing, there's just so much imperfect information anyway that you're looking for signals that, uh, you know, are these people organized? Do right. they care? Are they fast enough towards like, getting an answer? And then, you know, in the end, as the last point is basically, can they delight a customer? And uh, frankly, it's uh, it's very difficult to delight a customer. I mean, if you had to like list the last 15 years of you using some sort of customer service, so like when were the times that you were delighted? It's it, it's not easy to come up with a bunch of examples. I remember for me, like first years of new bank because we had such a bad experience with banks that uh, me going on an app and messaging somebody and getting an answer from my bank account in less than an hour. That was a lot. I got delighted for that. But, and then on the customers, like now we get used to that, right? Now there's so many other neobanks and fintechs that you 
are getting used to that. So keep delighting your customer with the market change and the customer expectation changes. It's getting harder and harder, but on a good way because it's getting better for the consumers, right? And as you say, uh, there's a lot of priorities uh, for the stage founders. Not all of them put their customers as top of that list. And if you believe that they need to build a product and an organization around their customers, validating how fast and the quality of their support should be very uh, should be part of the due, due diligence. Yes, I also heard about this guy called Jeff Bezos that really cared about the customer. I think he turned out, you know, he, I think he did well. <laughs> he did pretty fine. We are, we are, unfortunately, we are getting to the end of this conversation. And personally, I just want to ask you, like, you had an opportunity to work with phenomenal people. You mentioned that you learned a ton. What is the most unforgettable lesson that you had on the past decade or so working in tech? Optimize for the people always. It sounds so basic, but uh, you understand that when you are, when you face the differences between working with good versus bad people. So it's the number one thing is to just always optimize for people. So it goes beyond just the startup aspect of things, but I think it's more of a life um, uh, point. And once that's done, understand, which was an advice that I've, I think, had to tell myself multiple times, which was basically like speed isn't always the right answer. There are times where it actually pays off to ponder and reflect before you act. Specifically in a world of scalability and leverage, which is what we do in tech and venture. So I would say that optimize always for people and take time to build good judgment. That's a really that's a really good answer. Yeah. It's I mean we are on the on the on the building people process, teams, products, all surrounded by people that is behind them, right? So if you can surround yourself with good people that you enjoy, no matter what you're doing, you feel happy, right? You feel that you belong into a community, you belong into you belong into something that is sometimes bigger than yourself. So that that was a really good that was a really good answer. Uh, yeah, to close it up Half of me want to ask you, what are the sectors or industry that you are the most bullish on this post-pandemic world? But I'm going to hold on that. I mean, I'm going to ask you, like, uh, what, what do you think is I missing in terms of technology on a sector that you're super bullish? Well, when we think about just the decentralization of, of everything, a big problem is how do we authenticate people with their own identities in and out of services? So for me, for instance, I think it's pretty absurd. This is not a defense on Trump. I'm not a fan of him, Mm -hmm. but the fact that Twitter shut him down while he was still the sitting president of the United States, in my opinion, that's pretty concerning. Irrespective of what he was tweeting, he was still the sitting president. So that's one. Let's just, you know, park that for a second. 
Uh, and then once, you know, they did it, then Google did it and uh, YouTube did it and a bunch of other people uh, worked on, on canceling him. And in this, I don't want to get into Trump. It's not that, but, you know, in this particular situation, it's, it's very complex, but still, I'm not so sure that removing a specific person from your platform is the right way to solve a problem. And then the other part is that with cybersecurity attacks increasing so much and not a lot of people have even a very basic two-factor authentication mechanisms for, for what they do. It's just, why is it so hard to log in to all of your accounts? I'm just really tired of typing my emails and passwords or even clicking on the special links, right? We're getting to a point where, you know, I use a UBI key aside from Google Authenticator. And the more security I'm offered, the more I go through the trouble of securing my information in my accounts, but it destroys the user experience. And so isn't there a way for us to have a complete decentralized identity management mechanism that's, that, that allows us to be uncancelable? while also be cross-platform and log in to where we need to log in and log out whenever we got to log out. Um, that's a very complex problem. And, um, you know, that is something that is a, it's a very big idea that I would love to, to, you know, learn more about because it's just, um, yeah, I think that the experience for the user is terrible. And I believe that there's a big vulnerability aspect for, most of the people on the internet that, you know, the most of the internet, unfortunately, for the last 20 years has been closed. And now with the decentralization of a lot of things, it's getting better. I mean, I've been investing in the space for six years or so. Uh, so back when, you know, Bitcoin was $30 and Ethereum was $6. So now we're starting to see people understand why that's important. So, and we're still in the very, very, very early days. If this is the internet, you know, we're in, I don't know, the BBS era or something like that. So that's a big idea that I, that, you know, it's not just saying the obvious market stuff that, that I've been thinking about. That's a great idea. That's that's a really good opportunity for people that are, that are researching right now, a product you build. So here you go, everybody. There's a tip from Pedro for you. Yes, if you're working on that, please email me or tweet at me. I will be more than happy to learn more about it. Fantastic, fantastic. And then also ties to the user experience, the customer experience, make it easy for folks to be on the web, but on a secure way. Pedro, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on Sit Down Startup. Pleasure was all mine. I appreciate the invite. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Pedro. Pedro, thank you so much for taking time to join the podcast. There was much to take away from your experience and story. I am personally incredibly impressed with how you came to the States with only knowing one person and later built Atman Capital and all the steps in between. What a journey. Your point about how much capital has been raised in the last 15 years is also very interesting and how you've seen the emergence of better service providers and private community builders. Community has been a big theme for most of our startup guests. It's amazing to see how much you support the people you invest in, how you're always looking for ways to disrupt the venture industry like a true entrepreneur. I hope you all enjoy a double shot of Pedro on the pot. I'm sure they did, Pedro, or should I say Pedro's? If you like this episode, help us grow. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave a review. Stay safe. And hungry. Mm -hmm.